Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Woodburn Baptist Church. My name is Tim Harris. I am the pastor, and it is a privilege to welcome you this morning. What a great day to be in God's house. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. If you're guests this morning, let me tell you a few things about our church. First off, we are one church in two locations. We have a campus in Franklin, Kentucky, and they connect with us through video. So in the course of this sermon, as you see me look at the camera and talk to the folks in Franklin, understand we are connected to a congregation up the road, and they mean very, very much to us. God bless all of you in Franklin. Pastor Eric, I love you, and it's a, it's a joy to worship together with you all today. I remind you that I know the camera part is weird. I know that thinking about video preaching is weird. Uh, but but the, the amazing part of it is that the preaching is never about me. It's never about the preacher in the room. The, the word is not my word. It's God's word. And while I am not in the room with you, God is with you. And he will give his word power and his word will change your lives. Romans chapter 6 is where we'll be this morning. I want to show you uh, something that, uh, gosh, we use all the time, but you probably have never really seen before. You know what these are? Yeah. You know whose waiters they are? Yeah, these are mine. There's a, I share them with Pastor Eric. We've nearly lost Pastor Eric and these waiters a couple of times. Pastor Eric is a, is a, is a little bit shorter than I am. God bless your brother. Uh, but these are the waiters we use. When do we use them? Baptism. Yeah, baptism is something we do a, a lot, and I love baptism. You don't see these, though, so I just want to show them to you. I wear them underneath my robe. Now, why would I wear these? Yeah, to stay dry. This is an old preacher trick. We know that we have to baptize and get out of the water and be right out here right away. So we wear these waders. I wear my whole suit underneath, but when I put these on, it keeps my clothes dry so I can come out very, very quickly and resume preaching. Uh, it's an old pastor trick. Some of you don't know about these at all. There are many, many things that we preachers know about these. So first off, when you're wearing the waders and baptizing someone, it's very important that when you baptize, you don't bend over too far. Because what happens if you bend over too far? Yeah, water comes in, and then what happens? Anybody ever stood in a, a pair of waders that are full of water? You can't get them off. You can't get them off. Preachers have preached whole sermons in the baptistry because they could not get out of their waders. It, it, it happens, folks. I want to talk a little bit about baptism today. We're not baptizing today, and maybe that makes it a, a good day to talk about something so very important to us as Christians. Growing up Baptist, I've seen baptismal services all of my life. I've seen them mostly in baptistries like the one here at our church and the one at the Franklin campus. But when I was growing up, and even occasionally now, we would go out to the creek and baptize, I always, always have loved baptisms. Now, when you're a child growing up and watching baptism, it's an absolutely amazing thing because it's so concrete, because it's so physical. Kids can understand that water and understand what it means to get wet, and it looks so mysterious and powerful. And every Sunday when we baptize, I will face a line of kids standing outside my office at the end of the church, and they're saying, Brother Tim, I want to be baptized. Every kid wants to be baptized after seeing baptism because it's physical, because it's concrete, because they feel like they can understand what those symbols are, are all about. But honestly, there's so much more to it than just watching someone get wet, and that's why so often the kids get frustrated with me. I, I put them off and put them off and put them off. It, it's not just about getting wet. Surely you know that. 
There's lots and lots of stories we could tell about baptism, my goodness, because it's so physical, because we're human beings, and because getting wet and going down and up is, is, is such sort of a comical thing. Baptisms often go wrong. Usually they've gone right here. There was one occasion early in my ministry when I just couldn't get a woman under. And honestly, some of you, you see a great big person come in and say, Brother Tim, I hope you've been working out with weights. You're never going to get them. You don't understand. It's not a lot of muscle to bring them out of the water. I, I can't describe it. It's probably some physics involved, but it's not muscle to pull them up. It's the muscle to get people underwater. That's where I have to muscle it. And there was a lady who was fighting me, not on purpose, but some people just don't like, even though they love Jesus and want to get baptized, when I'm pushing them under, they're pushing me back. So I was muscling this woman underneath, and she was pushing back, coming back up. And, and honestly, I never got her nose in. I never, ever got her nose in. Sometimes I wonder about that lady's unbaptized nose, but, but, but I know, I know that her soul is secure with, with, with the Lord. Baptisms are just crazy like that. We as pastors always worry about what if they go wrong? And usually we are ready for all kinds of, all kinds of uh, events. I, I heard of a pastor who always kept a change of clothes in the back behind the baptistry because he was always ready for the day when his waiters would leak or, or somehow fill up. And on this particular day, they did. Now, he had had a clean pair of pants, a fresh pair of boxer shorts, undershirt shirt. He had it ready back there for years for the Sunday when everything went bad. And this particular Sunday, it went bad. His waiters leaked. His pants were wet. He was very grateful. He felt so smart because he had clothes to change into. Now, in this particular church, can y'all see where this is going? In this particular church, you had to go up some stairs right here at the stage, up some stairs, and the battery was a little bit high up there, and there was a door right there up high with stairs, and that door is where the pastor would go in. Now, he could pull a curtain on this side so that the people on the other side coming into the water couldn't see him, and that's where he would change in and out of his waders. Well, this day, he had to do a, a full change, understand everything was wet, so he was going to change everything and he was so grateful to have the clothes so he was up there up those steps behind that door he pulled the curtain on this side he took off his waders and then he took off everything else guys have you ever been putting your underwear on and lost balance has that ever happened to you yeah, I'm so sorry to have to tell this story, but anyway, he was doing this behind the door, and he lost his balance, and he fell against the door. Now, luckily, the door was there. Unluckily, the door flew open. Naked pastor rolls down the steps and flops out on the stage, and, and what church members for years would refer to as the pastor's moon landing on the stage. If that ever happens to me, I just hope it kills me. <laughs> I just hope, Pastor Eric, I hope it just kills me because I know this congregation, y'all got camera phones. <laughs> oh, I can't imagine. 
If you're outside the church, if you're a guest or a visitor and you've seen Christian baptisms, you're already thinking how weird this is. The whole ritual, if you're outsider, the whole ritual seems so beyond understanding. You just don't understand why possibly people would stand and dunk one another in water. I get that. I understand that it's a very, very strange ritual that for the most part we don't explain very often. So this morning I want us to stop and explain it. We're going to use Romans chapter 6 because in this particular scripture, Paul is explaining baptism to Christians. Paul is explaining baptism to Christians. He wants them to understand baptism. And honestly, even in the church sometimes, there's not a whole lot of understanding about this very, very fundamental moment in in our salvation process. So this, let's take a look at it together. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. As we get ready to read, I want you to understand what what the old preachers have always said, and and I still believe it's one of the easiest ways to think about it. Baptism is an outward expression of an inward experience. Say that with me. Baptism is an outward expression of an inward experience. That inward experience is salvation. That's very, very important. Baptism is an outward expression of something that has already taken place inwardly. And it's that inward experience that is our salvation. And it's the inward experience that Paul's going to talk about in Romans chapter 6, 1 through 11. Listen, uh, listen as we look into God's word together. Now Paul has just said in Romans chapter 5, as people sin more and more, God's wonderful grace became more and more abundant. Paul's been talking about the law. He's been talking about God's grace and how God forgives sinners. And how God forgives and forgives and forgives and, and when we confess him as our Lord and Savior, all of our sins are forgiven, which raises the question, if God is so good at forgiving, why don't we just keep on sinning? It's a logical question, really, and that's the question Paul picks up with in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, underline those words, since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we also will live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. 
It's good scripture, good scripture. Now remember, baptism is an outward expression of an inward experience. And that inward experience is what Paul is talking about here. And the best way to describe that inward experience, what happens in salvation, is the simple word death. It's a kind of death. Remember the story that Jesus told about the man who had two sons? He had two sons, one older and one was younger. And one day the younger son decided that he wanted his share of everything coming to him. Do you remember that story? It's just like saying, I wish my father were dead. In, in so many words, he said, Father, let's act like you're dead already and go ahead and divide the estate. And whatever is coming to me, I want that now. I'm going to hit the road. And that's what he said to his father. It's as if he said, I wish you were dead. Let's pretend like you are. Go ahead and divide up the estate and everything coming to me, I want now. And amazingly, the father granted that wish. In the story, the father says, son, th th that is fine. If that is what you want, that is what we will do. And he literally gives him his share of the estate while he's still living. He gives it to him as if he had died. And that young man hits the road. Do you remember the story? Do you remember what happens? He goes through that money like crazy. He spends it like crazy. And before long, it's all gone. Absolutely all gone. And he finds himself unemployed and, and, and flat broke and, and looking for some way to advance his life. And he, and he ends up slapping the hogs for some farmer, which remember, in the Jewish mindset, is, is a despicable, horrible kind of life. Horrible job. It's the bottom of the bottom, and that's where he winds up. And at that point, he thinks to himself, my goodness, here I am, starving to death, slaving away, working here in this pig farm. When I've got, uh, my father has servants back home who are well fed, well taken care of, doing very, very good jobs. Why don't I just go home? I've blown the opportunity to be a son, but why don't I just go back and apply for a job with my father? Just apply for a job. I'll be one of his servants. I'll be better off one of his servants than, than down here. And that's what he does. He practices the speech all the way home. And, uh, and he gets there at the driveway. And even before he gets home, do you remember how it goes? The father sees him from a long way off. And the father runs down the road and, and meets the son. And the scripture says, falls on his neck and, and begins to kiss him. And the son never, ever even gets to give his speech. He never even gets to the part about where I've just come to apply for work. I know I've ruined every opportunity to, to be your son. I, he doesn't even get to give his speech. The father instead immediately forgives him. Immediately forgives him. Puts the robe back across his back. Puts the ring of sonship back upon his hand and says, My son was gone and now he's come home again. He was dead and now he is alive again. And the party began. You know that story? Can you possibly imagine a scenario, maybe fast forward a year or two years down the road, and the son's been back home with his father enjoying everything that goes with being in the family. Can you imagine a year or two down the road, that son thinking to himself, you know what? That worked out pretty good. I'm going to try that again. Can you even imagine that? You know, that worked out. My father is such a good man. He will probably do that again with me. He'll divide the estate. I'll go out. I'll blow it. I'll come back home. We'll start all over. My father is a very gracious man. Can you even imagine the prodigal son saying, I'm going to try that again? Of course not. Of course not. 
Never, ever. Can you even imagine? And this is the kind of question that Paul begins the scripture with. It's the question that a lot of people, a lot of Christians ask. And it's a simple question. If, if God is so good at forgiving, if every time I run off and come back and ask for forgiveness, God's going to show me grace, then why don't I just sin all that I want? I mean, after all, if God is such a forgiving God, then why don't I just be a, a very sinful person? We'll get along great. I'll sin. God will forgive all the way to the end. And that's the way some people think. Do you understand that? Some people really think that way. But not Paul. Paul raises the question because it is a question that comes up. If, if God is so good at forgiving, why don't we just sin? But Paul says, because that's impossible. Because that's impossible. If you are a believer, if you're a Christian, and this is what Paul is saying, then something has happened inside of you. There has been an inward experience that makes it impossible for you to live like a prodigal again. Makes it impossible for you to live a life of sin. It's impossible for you, Paul says, because you have had an inward experience, and that's what we call salvation. You've had an inward experience, and that experience, for the most part, leaves you dead to sin. Paul says you are dead to sin. It's not possible now for you to live that life of sin. You're dead. A couple of weeks ago, we rented, uh, we rented a, it's supposed to be a really scary movie called The Others with Nicole Kidman. Anybody seen that? Okay, I'm about, to, I'm about to ruin the ending for you. The amazing thing about the movie, the whole movie, she's going through the movie and all these weird things are happening and everything's confusing. And at the end of the movie, she finds out what? She's dead. Yeah, she's dead. It's just like The Sixth Sense. Did you see that movie with Bruce Willis? It's, I see dead people. Do you remember that one? And you remember the big twist at the end of the movie was at the, at the very end, it turns out Bruce Willis is dead. He's dead and didn't know it. And this is one of those moments when Paul says, have you forgotten you're dead? Have you forgotten? Do you not realize that you died? And this is what Paul says. And in a very real sense, he's talking about salvation. This is what it means to be a Christian. You died. This inward experience of salvation, it is a death, a spiritual death. It's very, very real. It makes all the difference in the world in your life. Don't you realize that you died, Paul says? What's he talking about? He's talking about the big problem in all of our lives. Some of us do a better job of hiding it. Some of us do a better job of denying it. But none of us can get out, out from under the very, very real fact that we're sinners. We are everyone sinners, now, I know you're used to hearing that word come from a Baptist preacher's mouth, so it almost means nothing to you, but think about the sin in your own life. Think about all of those thoughts, all of those deeds, all of those things that live inside of you that honestly work against you. These are the very forces, the very powers of death at work in your heart. There's always a stupidity involved with sin. It's never, ever logical. Just ask Tiger Woods. There is an utter stupidity about our sin. Sin always has involved with it this idea that we knew better, but we still did otherwise. You would think that anybody would know better than to do some of the things we do, but apparently knowing better doesn't help us. We will still do otherwise. 
And there are some of us who hide sin very well. Some of us who deny sin very well. Some people would say, Brother Tim, I really don't think I'm that bad a person. I really don't think that I am. And and I guess I'm not even going to argue with you. I don't really know how bad of a person you are. What are we going to compare you to, Mary Poppins or or Mother Teresa or your mama? I, I don't know. I don't know exactly who we compare you to so that we decide that you're actually a very good person. I'm sure we could line up a whole line of people who are worse than you and make you look very good. But, but I promise you, there is one before whom you can stand and you won't look so good. And that is Jesus Christ. And he is the standard. He is the only sinless one, the only fully righteous one. One, in him was no sin. But God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. That is how Jesus becomes your savior. He takes upon himself your sin. Your sin. We don't understand sin very well. As much as that we should all be experts in it by now, we don't seem to get it, do we? We always tell ourselves that that somehow we're going to turn over a new leaf. We tell ourselves that starting tomorrow or starting next week or maybe starting in the month of May, somewhere down the road, we're going to be a brand new kind of person. I'm going to be one day the husband that that I know I need to be. I'm going to be the father, the mother. I'm going to be the employee. I'm going to be the man, the woman. I'm going to be the teenager that God wants me to be. And I'm going to start somewhere down the road. That's how we think. I'll go on some kind of diet. I'll take some kind of class. I'll read some sort of book. I'll go to church every time the door is open. I'll go to the altar. I'll pray. All kinds of tricks in our mind, how we're going to fix ourselves, how we're going to deal with ourselves. But I'm telling you, none of them work. Your sin is not something small, so small that you're going to fix it for yourself. Your sin is not something that somehow when it's compared to others, God eventually will overlook it. Your sin has consequences. And the consequences are always death. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Sin always leads to death. It always has consequences. I remember growing up, there was a country song my daddy used to listen to on, on his old radio. It, it, it went, it, it, the words were, God's going to get you for that. Remember that? God's going to get you for that. There's no place to run and hide. He knows where you're at. God's going to get you for that. Man, y- y'all, y'all just sh- should have listened to the radio with my daddy years ago. God's going to get you for that. And that's how a lot of people think, that God's going to get you for that. And honestly, God is a holy God who does punish sin. But also realize sin in itself usually carries much of its own punishment. The the sin that is in your life now creates most of the misery in your life now. All of the guilt and all of the shame. Sin always carries its own punishment with it. Problem is sin. And the problem is that you are powerless before your sin. The whole world is powerless before sin. We can't stop sinning even though we can wish that we could. We're powerless before our addictions. We're powerless before our habits. You can't control your mouth. You can't control your appetite. You can't control your sexual urges. You cannot deal with your own sin. You cannot be your own savior. 
When Paul talks about sin, it's a force. It's a power in our lives that makes us slaves. That's how he talks. It's not just the little things you do that you regret, the little things that would be embarrassing if your mama found out. We're talking about the very things that ruin your life from the inside out, the things that lead to death. And these are the things that separate you from a holy God. It is a force. It is a power. And you are not powerful enough to break its power over you. This is what scripture says. The wages of sin is death. It has consequences. Consequences always death in this life and eternally in the life to come. Wages of sin is death. There's another story in the Gospel of Mark where James and John, the disciples, come to Jesus one day to ask a favor. Do you remember this? Remember what they asked him? They said, Jesus, when everything is said and done and you're up in glory and, and we're there with you, and at that big moment when the, shot, the spotlight shines on you, we would really love to be standing next to you, one on the left and one on the right. We just want to be there. We want to be right there in places of honor. Would you give us the highest? We don't want your place. So you're Jesus. You can have the spotlight. But we just want to be beside you, right beside you in the picture. What does Jesus say? It's an interesting question. Jesus says to them, can you be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? And that's the question he asked them. Can you be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with. Now remember, this is long before anybody had ever seen the first baptistry, long before people had grown up in Baptist churches watching people be baptized. I don't really know what James and John would have understood when Jesus asked them about baptism like that. But the word he's using means to immerse. It means to drown. It means to submerge in water completely. That's what the word means. So Jesus is asking, can you possibly experience the immersion, the, the drowning? The, uh, can you possibly go under in the way I'm going to go under in baptism? And they say, sure, of course we can. But they don't understand. What I want you to get is that when Jesus talks about baptism there, he's not talking about water. He's not talking about that kind of baptism. Truly, Jesus had already been baptized by John the baptizer in the Jordan River. James and John probably had experienced that baptism as well. Jesus isn't talking about that baptism. He's talking about something else. He's talking about his submersion into suffering. He's talking about his death. When Jesus says, can you be baptized with the baptism I'm going to be baptized with, he's talking about his impending death on the cross. Can you suffer what I have suffered? Can you die my death? And they say, oh, sure, of course. And then Jesus says, indeed you will. But you can't have those places. They're not really mine to assign. But notice the connection that Jesus makes there. The connection between baptism and his death. It's the same connection that Paul is making here in Romans chapter 6. It's why Paul wants people to understand the inward experience of salvation, how it's a kind of death, a death to your sins, and how baptism is that outward expression, a way of showing on the outside what's happening on the inside. 
The truth is, because of your sin, you had to die. Someone had to die for your sins. By the very grace of God, he made him who had no sin to be sin itself. Jesus took upon himself your sins. And his death on the cross, therefore, was not for himself, not for his sins, but for your sins. He died for you. He died for me. Baptism is a wonderful way of expressing that, of showing that. Now I remind you, baptism is the outward expression of the inward experience. The inward experience is salvation. Baptism is not salvation. Baptism is not salvation. If I thought that just by getting you baptized you would be saved, I would push you in the next time you get close to the water. I would. I would push you in. If I thought that that's all it took, you just needed one trip through that tub, I would push you in the next time you got close. But that won't do it. There must be an inward experience, a spiritual death with Jesus. That's why the first time your child comes up to me and says, Brother Tim, I want to be baptized, I'm likely going to put them off for a while. I'm going to celebrate, I'm going to encourage them, I'm going to talk to them. But we're not going to baptize them the first time they want to walk through the water. Do you understand why? Because it's not about the baptism. It's about the inward experience with Christ. We have to know that your child, and for that matter, anybody else who wants to be baptized, we have to make sure that they have had the inward experience with Christ, a death with him. Paul says we suffer a death like his so that we can live a life like his. And baptism is the wonderful place where my story and Jesus' story come together. When you stand in the waters of baptism, uh, the way most churches do it, the way we do it, of course, you'll stand right here, and at first I'll usually say your name. I'll usually ask you, who is Jesus, and what is the response that is usually given at Woodburn Baptist Church? Who is Jesus? And you'll say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Yeah. The New Testament says, if you'll confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. We like for baptism to be accompanied with that confession of faith. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. And then I'll say something like, upon your profession of faith in Jesus Christ and in obedience to his command, we baptize you, our sister. We baptize you, our brother, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Again, language that comes directly from Scripture. And then I'll usually say these words. I'll cover your face. I'll push you down into the water. What do I say at that point? And now you are... Buried with Christ in baptism. It's a burial. In other words, through salvation, through Christ, there's been a death. There's a part of you that has died. Your old person, the old sinful self, is dead. Buried with Christ. Buried with him in baptism. And then, raised to walk in the newness of Christian life. Comes directly from Romans chapter 6. Your baptism is a picture of your death and burial with Christ and then being raised again with him. In other words, his story is now your story. His life is now your life because the old you is dead and buried. The old sinful you, the selfish side of you, the lustful side of you, the dishonest, lazy side of you has been put to death. That person is no longer with us. You are a brand new creature in Christ, raised to walk as a new person. I love that. Raised to walk in the newness of life. 
It's, it's an outward expression of an inward experience. In, in other words, if, if you're a Christian, then you should resonate with what I'm saying, what Paul is saying here. You've experienced a kind of death. That old person that used to be ain't no more. The person you were before you came to Christ is no longer with us. That person is dead and buried. There is a new man, a new woman in Christ. And this is what the scriptures say. And this is what is so important to Paul. It's not that baptism makes this happen, but baptism is the best picture of what has happened inside of you in Christ. And the amazing thing about what Paul is saying here is that since you have identified with Christ through salvation, through faith, now everything that is true of Christ, everything that can be said of Christ, can also be said of those of us who are in Christ. That is why Paul can say, death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. Now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. What can be said of Christ can also be said of those of us in Christ. So death and sin have no power over him. And because I am in Christ through faith, death and sin have no power over me. Remember the story in the New Testament about the prodigal son? Jesus said there was a man who had two sons, and the one said, Dad, I, just, I, I, was, I wish it were like you were dead, and, and we could go ahead and divide the estate, and the father does that, and the son leaves with his share of the money, and, and then he comes back, and, and he's graciously forgiven and, and restored as a son. And, and I asked you, could you imagine, fast forward a year or two, and imagine that prodigal son saying, you know, I'm going to try that again. I think I could, I worked out pretty, I think I could, I think I'd like to do that again. And you all said, no, 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 that would never happen. What planet are you on? That's what we do all the time. That's how we live. That is my experience and your experience. I have experienced salvation. I've experienced that death to self. But there's something about that old man, that old self that is Tim Harris. He keeps following me. It's like the baptism when I'm muscling the person under and that person continues to resist. There is a part of me that continues to resist. It is the sinful part of me that continues to follow me around. It's dead. It's the dead part of me, but it continues to travel with me. And every single day, I have to continue to put it to death and bury it in Christ. Every day, I battle that sinful side of me. It is dead. It has no power over me. And yet, it continues to follow me through every day. Those of you who went to Warren Central High School, go Dragons, uh, back in the day, you'll remember when Henry Smalling was the vice principal. How many of you remember that? Remember Henry Smalley as vice principal? Those were wonderful days. Henry is now a member of our church, and I love that. I love calling him Henry because you'd have never done that when you were a junior in high school back in the 80s. Henry Smalling was a force to be reckoned with. He roamed the halls with that flaming red hair and those polyester suits. He roamed the halls just looking for one of us out of place, now didn't he? And if you were out of place, he would get you. Were you ever at Hardy's during lunch? Remember at Warren Central, you used to have Hardy's restaurant. Tommy Hardcastle, I've seen you at Hardy's at lunch. 
teenagers never do this, but we used to sneak off, sneak out of school, and go to Hardee's for lunch. I mean, you got a hot ham and cheese and fries, or you know, uh, you know, uh, one of those mystery meat kind of things. You go to Hardee's all the time. The problem is, Mr. Smalley knew we went to Hardee's. So what did he do? He'd go to Hardee's. Mr. Smalling would show up at Hardee's, and then what would we do? We'd fly out that other door, get in our cars, and get back in school. I mean, it was Mr. Smalling. The very sight of him would make you spit your hot ham and cheese out and get back to school. If he saw you roaming the hall, what did he do? Mr. Harris, what are you doing today? Can I see your hall pass? Yeah, hall pass. In four years of high school, I never saw one of those. But Mr. Smalling said, where's your hall pass? I don't Mr. Smalling, I don't know. I can't find it. Back to class. That was Mr. Smalling. But you know, now he goes to church with us and he's retired. You know what I love about that? In the parking lot, he cannot ask me if I have a pass to leave. If I meet him in the men's room, he can't ask to see my bathroom pass. You understand? That time of my life is gone. Mr. Smalling, God bless him, I love him. He's a brother in Christ, but he does not have that power over me anymore. He cannot tell me when to come and go. He can't call me into his office. He cannot ask to see a pass. He can't paddle me. I don't think, Marie, would he? He might. He no longer has that authority over me. Do you see what I'm saying? In a much grander, much more powerful way, this is what Scripture says about those of us in Christ. Sin no longer has that power over you. Now, it is probably inevitable that you're going to sin, and I'm going to sin as well. I continue to battle that old, dead, sinful man. But at the same time, it is not necessary that I sin. I can never say that I couldn't help it. I can never say that the devil made me do it. I always have that choice because sin no longer holds me as a slave. Sin no longer has power over me. It has no power over me at all. No more power over me than it has over Christ. That's what Paul says. If it's true of Christ, it's true of me in Christ. And sin and death have no power over him. And therefore, sin and death have no power over me. Baptism is an outward expression of that inward moment, that inward experience of a total death to sin and coming alive in Christ. That's what salvation is. Of course, now I live a life in Christ, as do most of you. It's not easy. If it were easy, everybody would do it. But what I must do every single day is discern my own heart and look at the things inside of me that, that are dying or should be put to death. And every single day I have to root those things out and put them to death and bury them. I'm talking about the lust inside of me. I'm talking about the anger inside of me, the, the selfishness. I'm talking about the lack of kindness. I'm talking about the pridefulness and the shame. All of those things inside of me that should be dead with Christ, I have to every single day identify them and bury them. And at the very same time, I have to search my heart and look for all of the things that Jesus is bringing to life, the things that have nothing to do with the old me, the things that have to do with grace, and the things that have to do with peace and kindness kindness and strength in the spirit, all of those are the very things, the hope, the faith, and the love of Christ that are coming to life. And I have to let those things live and breathe in me. Because I've died. 
I've died to that old person. I've died to all of those old things. I don't want those things in my life anymore. Do they still come up like ghosts? Yes, they do. But every time they raise their head, I have to crucify them with Christ once more and bury them with him. Do I have to get saved over and over and over? Of course not. Jesus died one time for my sins. Everyone who calls upon his name, the scripture says, shall be saved. I trust him. My salvation is not a matter of my living a sinless life. If I could do that, I wouldn't need a savior. My salvation is a matter of putting my heart, my soul, my life in the hands of the only one with power to save me. Only one with power. To put the old man to death, give me a brand new life. If you've ever been baptized, you were showing some sort of outward sign, an outward sermon, if you will, an outward expression of that experience that happened in your heart. Now, if that inward experience never happened for you, if there's never been a moment in your life when you put to death the old person, the old flesh, the old sin, if there's never been a moment in your life when you've turned from your sin in that way and begin following the Lord, you need to do that first and you need to do that today. That's what we mean by becoming a Christian. I'm not asking you if you've been baptized because I'm telling you that's beside the point when we're talking about salvation. Salvation comes first. It's that inward experience. Have you experienced the Savior in that way? If not, I'm asking you to do so today. If you have experienced that inward salvation, that death and burial and resurrection with Christ, then you will say your baptism was one of the most marvelous ways of letting the world know that you belong to him. It's an amazing, invisible thing we're talking about. When I say that I've been dead and buried and raised with Christ, you can't necessarily see that. That happened on the cross with Christ. It happened in my heart in the moment that I believed. But in the moment that I was baptized, I shared it with the world. My friend, to be a Christian is to be dead, buried, and raised with Jesus on the cross that has never happened to you, you need to believe. You need to put to death the old self through Christ. You need to become a Christian. After you become a Christian, we can talk about your baptism. Pray with me. God, there's some within the sound of my voice who honestly do not believe that they need a Savior. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would speak to their hearts and show them their sin. And Lord, show them their hopelessness without you. And show them, Lord, something of what eternal death looks like. God, I pray for those who continue to put their confidence in their own shallow goodness. Lord Jesus, show them the shallowness of their goodness and the depths of your grace. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would stir in the hearts of all those in this house today, those who are not Christians, that they might come to faith. And I pray also, Lord, that you'd stir in the hearts of every Christian, that they would understand that the life of sin is a contradiction of their confession of faith in you. Lord Jesus, help all of us to put to death the sin within us. And Lord, I pray that you would raise to new life within every one of us, the man, the woman, the new creature that you want us to be. 
Lord Jesus, this kind of spiritual death can only happen through you, only by your cross. And this kind of spiritual resurrection, Lord, it only happens because you were raised, because you have power, and you give us power, Lord, over sin and death. Lord Jesus, I pray for every powerless sinner in this house that today we would come to you, make you Lord of all, and find power that comes only from you. Lord Jesus, save us, empower us, raise us to new life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.